0: Pazoozie has been poured.
1: The candle is lit.
0: Welcome to the Horror Salon. I am your co-host, Andemic.
1: And I'm your co-host, The Witch. All right. Horror nerds, (laughs) let me just tell you this. I have been sitting here watching Andemic giggle (laughs) with delight for about 15 whole minutes as she concocts something behind her secret magic board the of box of mystery the box of mystery correct um so i have no idea what i'm in store for right now okay so we'll
0: just uh we'll get everybody ready prepared here and i'll just say master of horror mm. prolific writer mm-hmm. creator of clowns and psychopaths and aliens mm-hmm. and gunslingers oh, yeah. Horrible writer of women, but I digress. Mm-hmm. Uh, that slipped out. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, you can probably guess who we're talking about. Who are we talking about? <gasps> the one and only
1: Stephen King.
0: Yes. So, um, with that in mind, I mean, he his body of work is so massive yes. that I was just going to do a boring, you know, you know. Anybody who's followed this so far knows that I do, like, boring, weird stuff. Well, weird stuff and boring beers. Let's say it that way.
1: Light beers. I wouldn't even say boring beers. I'd Not
0: bison though. Not bison. Not
1: <laughs> but you do, you like a beer that can be sipped on a hot summer's day. Exactly. A beer you can see through. Yeah.
0: Hashtag a beer you can a see through. A beer you can
1: see through. <laughs>
0: okay, so... With that in mind, I, I got my juices flowing today. Literally, there's a bunch of juice in this box. Yes. Um, so we're going to start this off. They're all Stephen King themed. She doesn't know what they're going to be, so I'm going to make her take it. And these are, uh, yeah, shots, four shots. Uh, I'm going to make her take it, and then I'm going to tell do her I what have, it is. Do I
1: have to drink the whole shot? Yes.
0: Oh. It's a shot. It's a shot. You have to shoot it. You have to shoot the shot. Uh, okay. Okay, so let's get this all kicked off with number one. This is the Georgie
1: oh. and you have to say it like that.
0: <gasps> the Georgie. The Georgie.
1: Does that have cotton? Is that a peep? Yeah. Oh my god. So there is shoot it and then shove the peep in. It is a pink and blue peep which I am interpreting as this could be a cotton candy peep, but I don't know yet. So we're going to we're going to and it is a it is a, like a cloudy urine colored shot.
0: Okay, ready? <laughs> Down the hatch.
1: All right. <laughs> so that just tasted like orange juice. And I think it's a
0: cotton candy peep. You're right. It is. Okay, so the inspiration, the the yellow color, orange juice, is mm-hmm. basically a screwdriver mm-hmm. because of his little yellow rain slicker. And then okay. I put in some tart cherry okay. to give it a little bit of a red color because you mm-hmm. know what happens to Georgie. Yeah. 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 And then uh, I mean obviously in honor of you had to uh, do. Mr. Wise,
1: you had to do. Um uh, I candy. used a cotton candy flavored peep. I enjoyed that because I get that now cuz it was very orange juicy. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense, screwdriver. It was very good and the peep was tasty in and of itself. Of course, if you're like, I don't like marshmallow, I don't like peeps, then you're going to hate that portion of it. But I thought it was delicious. Well,
0: basically what I decided to call that part, the peep, that's the we all float down here chasing.
1: (gasps) Love that. Yeah. Love that. So drink one, the Georgie. The Georgie. Delicious. Uh, Would would recommend the Georgie.
0: Excellent. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to make
1: the next one stronger just because you said I like to taste orange juice. So (laughs) (laughs) guess what?
0: Oh, no. Or the next one you're going to taste burning.
1: I'm going to taste burning. Okay, here it comes. Okay. Okay. Right, I'm
0: gonna have to reuse these for one of them. I think. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. So, Stephen King. Full disclosure, I am not a huge fan of his books, um, and it's more because I have trouble with his writing. Okay. Um, I, I've never really been able to get through a whole a whole book. I have tried. I have really tried, and I acknowledge him as the master of horror. I mean, I certainly do, but one thing that definitely always stops me and we'll just get this out of the way. Now do I it. do not like the way he writes women. I think the way he does it is problematic and he's not the only one. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's obviously every, it's been around for years and years and years. Sure. Um, his women tend to be hypersexualized, ab- abused, face trauma.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, I mean, let's think about Bev in it. She, yeah. uh, invites every member of the losers club to have sex with her. Um, sometimes they're roadblocks to the male protagonist getting shit done. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Um, there's the overbearing mother and then, you know, associated with evil. Um, it's kind of doubling down on that, that weird obsession with what is the feminine and what is associated with being female.
1: Yeah. I can, I can understand that for sure because looking back on his canon of work, there are quite a few women in. In his canon. Like main character women. Or yeah. part of the main cast women. I should say. And they all kind of do. Face horrific trauma.
0: I feel like it's disproportionate. Because shit happens to all his characters. Oh, yeah. I everyone... feel like it's a little disproportionate with women.
1: And it's always sexual. Always. That I, I think maybe that is my hang up. With King and his treatment of women. Is that there's always a sexual component to his female characters right and there's just more to women than sex uh way more way more so i wish i wish that that was fleshed out more in his stories yeah so i i would agree with you there i i'm not the hugest fan of how he writes women but i do like what else stephen king has to offer i do have to say
0: no okay and i will um uh, if you don't mind i'll start that off please because i I love his book on writing. Mm. I could not put that book down. There you go. It was fantastic. Um, I respect him as an artist. I think, I mean, I don't know. His body of work is considerable. And I'm going to say uh, we drove all the way to Nashville to see him at the Ryman Auditorium. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm kind of backtracking a little bit. But we'll, we'll talk about on writing in a second. Um, so it was it was rather epic to see him live because he is he is Stephen King just because I don't happen to get on board with with some of his work I he's Stephen King um but mostly I give him credence because he was good friends with the late great George Romero that's right all roads lead back to George Romero Mm -hmm. um they collaborated on a number of projects Mm -hmm. um and both of them have the similar had George Romero passed away a few years ago. But they had a similar um, similar interest and passion in preserving the original versions of their ah, work. I gotcha, I gotcha. Um, uh, uh, of their final products. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> Romero had pretty epic problems, uh, uh, legendary problems with the Hollywood machine. Um, and I think the same can be said for Stephen King and some mm-hmm. of the adaptations of yeah. his work. Uh, but they did collaborate the two of them collaborated on some really cool stuff. One of my all-time favorites, Night Riders, right? Um, which is a completely underrated flick. Creep show one and two, yep. uh, classics. I mean, I could talk about this all day. So, but that's all I'm going to say about that part.
1: Awesome, awesome.
0: So, is it? Do you want to talk?
1: Well, I have a little bit down about his history. If oh, you yeah, want me yeah, to kind of yeah. launch I'm sorry, into that, yes. no, yeah, just excited, Let's- yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> no, and I think it's important to kind of at the onset level set and say, you know, yeah. We love some portions of his writing and maybe not love some other portions of his writing. So I think that's important for our audience to understand.
0: And we acknowledge the problematic also. Exactly. Because there's also some homophobia and misogyny. Oh, 100%. (gasps) Going on in there.
1: 100%. Okay. Okay. So Stephen King. He was born September 21st, 1947 in Portland, Maine. So most... Of you, if you're familiar with Stephen King, will know this, but a lot of what Stephen King writes is based in Maine. And he right. actually grew up there, still has homes in Maine. There's a reason why many of his books are based in that area of the US. His parents, Donald Edwin King and Nellie Ruth King, His father, Donald, uh, leaves the family when uh, Stephen is only two years old. So that leaves Nellie to kind of raise Stephen alongside his brother, David. And it just seems like this has been so often a trope with a lot of these authors we've been talking about. Is the father leaving the family at a very young age for a lot of these um, creatives, which I'm just now recognizing. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an important thing to kind of pull out is that so many of these really well-renowned authors um, are their father is kind of not in the picture. So Nellie raises the, the two boys. It was very difficult for her financially to, to raise her family, so they ended up moving around a lot when Stephen King was younger. Um, so they lived in a, a bunch of different states for a while because Nellie was kind of reliant on some of her family members to help her out financially, as you can imagine. Sure. But she ends up back in Durham, Maine, uh, to, to care for her aging parents. So they are just getting older and are experiencing illness because of that. So Nellie and the family moves back she takes care of the aging parents um and then when they eventually pass away she is able to find a job in a residential facility for the mentally ill so this is when they kind of land and stick in yeah yes, Maine. right yeah um Excuse so me. from there stephen king kind of develops this love of horror at a very early age and there are some conflicting accounts As to why he might have developed such a love of horror. He himself says that his love of horror uh, happened when he happened upon a collection of H.P. Lovecraft stories. That'll do it. That'll do it, (laughs) right? I mean, that's, you know, one of the grandfathers of horror there. But other folks say, well, of course, I'm sure that was part of how he came to enjoy horror as kind of a literature um, theme. He did experience some trauma, uh, additional trauma, I should say, when he was very young. Uh, he actually witnessed the death of one of his childhood friends when he was just a little kid. Yeah, and so I read uh, that. yeah. So and it was kind of horrific. Uh, he was playing with his friend, and they were near some railroad tracks, and unfortunately. The, the friend was in the wrong place at the wrong time when a train came by and passed away. So when King shows back up that night at his house he just looks completely in shock and doesn't yeah. really reveal what's happened to him until a little later when his mother finds out, oh actually his friend has passed. This is what happened. This is must be what is wrong with Stephen right now. So one has to wonder if you know such a trauma like that at such an early age would definitely have some sort of impact on your outlook on life right
0: yeah because being exposed to death like that changes you like very little else very little else yeah
1: and it just so happens he has this obsession with horror and you have to imagine that there's some connection there. i would imagine so he uh after these events he's growing up he actually starts writing at this age, and he is known for selling scary stories to his friends. <laughs> um, and actually, he gets in cu- in kind of trouble with it because he's selling the stories. So like <laughs> he's awesome. he's got a small business going on here. Um, and at this time, he kind of uh, notes that he had a particular love for EC horror comics. Have you ever heard of EC horror e. comics? Yeah. That was I one, don't think so. yeah. That was one I hadn't heard of, but I guess they are the comic. Um, what would you call them? Publishing house of yeah. uh, the Tales for the Crypt.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. So he really liked would Tales he for the Crypt. On with Romero,
1: exactly, exactly. So he was re- he was consuming a lot of that at the time. Yep. He was writing stories for his friends. So this is kind of you know he he he's starting mm-hmm. his his kind of um, pathway down down into horror. He attends the University of Maine. Um, And while he was there, I thought this was fun. He actually wrote a column for the student newspaper, and it was called Steve King's Garbage (laughs) Truck, which is awesome. Yep. He was also very active in student government at the University of Maine, particularly in the student Senate. So this is where I had no idea how politically active Stephen King was and still currently is. And this made me really respect him and kind of grow a new fondness for him but at the time yeah yeah, at the time uh he was really anti-war so this was when the vietnam war was going on um he was really anti-war and he was very outspoken uh in the student government about how he felt the war was unconstitutional Hmm. so that was one of his early political activist types of things uh nowadays he's Definitely left-leaning, very democratic, supports a lot of democratic candidates, um, and just is he, he his big issue uh, that he is very outspoken about is gun control, and okay. and um, he's just been really politically active and seems to. Put his money where his mouth is, essentially. Yeah, uh, and backs candidates and, and you know raises awareness and all sorts of things. So that made me have a newfound yeah. respect. For he trolled him. A, a certain former
0: president mm-hmm. pretty good mm-hmm. on Twitter. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, I I did not know that. So I was I was I was big fan of that. Yeah. I, I like I like when really big powerhouses aren't afraid to say what they feel what they feel i really i really respect that so i think i i i grew some respect for him after doing that research but i digress uh (laughs) so his first short story um was the glass floor and he sold that in 1967 to Startling myst- Mystery Stories. And so that was kind of the, the his first foray into writing as somewhat of a career or making money off of his writing. Yeah. And um, he, he kind of continues that on later in life He uh, when he graduates from university. So he graduates with an English degree and he picks up his teaching license yeah. and certificate. But he's having a hard time kind of finding a, a gig. A teaching gig so he continues to write those types of stories shorter stories mm-hmm. selling them to magazines mm-hmm. and kind of making a living that way and doing that with some other odd jobs is, mm-hmm. is how he makes a living and he actually meets his wife before he graduates the university of maine tabitha spruce is her name and she's also a well-respected author um and he meets her in the library which, I, which I love that so um so yeah, so he just had kind of these these writing gigs, odd jobs, things like that. Um he eventually does find a teaching job. So he's a teacher and he's still writing on the weekends and the evenings, and his first really big break is kind of a behemoth. It's Carrie. Carrie. Mm-hmm. Ooh, and Carrie. so yeah, I'd love to talk about Carrie because I I find it fascinating that this is his first big break, right? Um, So, and we all know the story of Carrie. We might not have read it, but we probably know, if we're in the horror realm, we know what the gist of the story is, right? Right. So it's so iconic. And he didn't, he thought it was awful. Yeah, he threw it in the trash. Yeah, he didn't want to send it out. He thought it was terrible. And this is where I got to give Tabitha... She pulled it out of the trash. She pulled it out of the trash <laughs> and said, no,
0: you're going yeah, to continue writing this story. there is promise to the story.
1: And she actually... And this I'd love to get your perspective on, endemic because she told him, from what I read, that she would help him kind of write the female perspective, because I think that's from what I could find, King had an issue. He, His main character is Carrie, and he doesn't know how to write carrie because he didn't have the same experience as carrie and then tabitha pulls it out of the trash and says i can help you write Carrie." um so i i wanted i I wanted to get your perspective on how you view carrie particularly knowing that and i i would agree with you knowing that king sometimes writes women problematically Mm -hmm. i want I, i would love to get your perspective on how you view carrie in that
0: well that is a good question She's a very sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Um, she comes from, you know, a, a horrendously religious mother. Right. I don't mean horrendously. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <clears throat> and you root for her. Because they were all awful. Yeah. So the, the way he wrote her as a main character was more palatable f- to me than some of the, the satellite characters that mm. befall rape and beatings and, you know, yeah. whatever else. Yes. Um, so she works for me as just a very sympathetic, pathetic creature because people like that exist. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I find her relatable, uh, in some of the Mm -hmm. stuff she went through. And so, okay, well, you know, if, if Tabitha helped, yay, good on Tabitha. Good on Tabitha with that one. Because that character, I can, I can see Not myself necessarily, but I can recognize that character. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, that's good. That's good to know. And for those of you who may not know the story of Carrie, in a very brief summation, Carrie is a teenage girl who is being raised by a religious zealot Mm -hmm. of a mom. And she is an outcast at her school. Mm -hmm. And she gets asked to the prom by a very popular boy. And it turns out that it is all a setup to completely humiliate her yeah. at prom. And uh, you find out that Carrie has telekinesis mm-hmm. and she goes on a rampage using her telekinesis to punish those that wrong. Yeah, her. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is pretty horrific.
0: Okay, so since we brought up Carrie first here, mm-hmm. the next shot happens to be Carrie related. Oh, well, then we have to do it. Okay, so without further ado, oh, then. Gosh. Oh God! Okay, this is the they're all going to laugh at you with a dirty pillow chaser. With a dirt.
1: Oh my gosh! What is that exactly. on top? What is that on top of that? So on, we've got another fun little snacky on top of the shot. Um, the shot is blood red oh for obvious gosh. reasons. What is the snack? It's chocolate covered and gooey.
0: It's a dirty pillow. You eat the dirty pillow last. I eat
1: the dirty pillow last. Okay. Well, the shot is red, which is appropriate for this. So Down the hatch, which Down the hatch.
0: Ew. And the snack bleeds too.
1: (laughs) So that definitely was a cherry-themed shot, which you definitely put double shot of vodka in there. (laughs) Yeah, I did. (laughs) And this is, I'm guessing, a chocolate-covered cherry cordial? Okay. So...
0: Um... Cheap vodka, all of these are made with Kamchatka vodka. It's like four cents a gross. Um, (laughs) So this one was of course inspired by Carrie being drenched with blood and the dirty pillows which is what her mother called her breasts. And So it was vodka with a really thick tart cherry juice and then the dirty pillow is called a Christopher's big cherry it's a whole cherry center i guess yeah cordial would be okay. a, a good thing to call it it's got it's got nuts around it though too yeah
1: it's like a different take on a cordial yeah this is a very decadent shot i really like it but i'm also very partial to cherry flavor mm. yeah so that was like a perfect storm for me
0: this is called cherry bundy
1: I've never even heard of that. tart cherry juice. It's delicious. You want
0: another shot? Another carry?
1: Um, How many more shots do we have to go tonight? Two more after that. Two more after that. Then now I'm good. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Okay. Did you eat your whole dirty pillow? Heck yeah, I did. That was delicious.
0: I promised promised our uh, podcast pal, Jay, that I would say dirty pillows as many times as possible. Oh, yeah. Hashtag dirty pillows. Dirty
1: pillows. (laughs) Love that. Okay. I love it. Okay, so, yeah. So, Carrie, um, first story King ever published. So, after they get it out, right, um, send it off to the publisher. uh, Because at first, I should have noted this. It was one of those magazine stories again. That's what okay. h- that's how King was writing it because that's what he was used to writing. And he threw it in the trash. And Tabitha was like, "What the hell are you doing?" Mm-hmm. And picks it out of the trash and says, "You need to develop this." And so he lengthens it into a novel size. And it is eventually published in 1973. And it this is the, actually the novel that has so much success that King is. Finally, Mm -hmm. able to quit teaching and pursue writing full time. Yeah, so
0: this this is great. Yeah, didn't he think? Um, they they were hoping that the the paperback sales would bring in you know sixty thousand dollars, and it ended up bringing in well over two hundred thousand dollars.
1: It brought in, I think, I read four hundred. Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. It was something up there. It was it was, and at at that time, yeah, that's great. Can you imagine? Yeah. So that that really kickstarted his career, and then we all know it became the iconic movie that it is today. Uh, that aired in 1976 with Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek, man! Oh my gosh!
0: And maybe maybe that's part of the reason why I feel, you know, full disclosure. Everybody knows I love horror movies, so I know more about Stephen King through his movies than sure. his books. Sure. So they're probably, you know, I have no uh, dog in the in the hunt. So. I might like some of these for the exact reason that maybe really big Stephen King fans hate them. Sure. <laughs> that's that's a possibility. It's possible. Absolutely. But, uh, I I don't know. Sissy Spacek in that role, just going into it without having read the book, uh, it was a fantastic, fantastically sympathetic character. Yeah. I think she did a fantastic job. Yeah.
1: I've never read Carrie either. I should. I, I've read some Stephen King, but I haven't read Carrie, which I should. I should read read Carrie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so then Carrie is published. Now he's on a roll. He next up publishes Salem's Lot in 1975. So not too long after Carrie's published, because remember, she's in 1973. Yep. Uh, I love this. King calls Salem's Lot his down home story, (laughs) which just cracks me up. Then after that, 1977. So again, these are starting to become rapid fire.
0: Well, let's talk first about Salem's Lot just for a quick second. Because that movie stuck with me. Oh, sure. Like few other, you know, I have snippets of things that have stuck with me over Absolutely. the years from my childhood. And that kid floating outside that window, scratching on the window.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. Um, and what I love about that story is it's a whole, a, a town that is completely empty during the day. Yep. The thought of that, but knowing Mm -hmm. that there are people, um, there are people there. They're there. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. There's just something about that. And I guess that was kind of inspired. um, The first adult book he read as a kid was Dracula. Oh, yeah. That has to be
1: inspired by. I
0: mean, yeah. A Town of Vampires. um, And the modern day just moving on sort of rendering that belief in things like vampires obsolete Mm -hmm. and they just continue to to thrive under the radar yep it's
1: fascinating it's a wonderful but that damn
0: kid scratching at the window trying to get the other little kid to come
1: out iconic scary so 1977 the shining um This is actually very interesting to me because it was at this time, and I don't know, I read a couple sources that said this, so I'm going to take it as true because it's kind of fun, but so King moves his family to Boulder, Colorado. Yes. Yes, he does. And uh, this happens after his mother's death. Um, And it's said that he chose Boulder, Colorado. I find this so fun. By just opening up an atlas mm-hmm. and pointing. He just pointed. And he's like, okay, we're going to Boulder. I hope that's that. true. I hope that's true, too. I truly hope that's true. Um, so they end up in Boulder, Colorado. And in 1974, King and Tabitha, uh, Stephen King and Tabitha uh, stay at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. And this is uh, the inspiration for The Shining, as we all know. And actually, I didn't know this part of it, but it ended up that when they went to the Stanley Hotel, it ended up that they were the only two in the
0: entire They were there hotel. on the last day of the season. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. So I can't imagine. And you have actually been to the Stanley Hotel, so you can probably illuminate yeah. this. Uh, go but ahead. But I can't imagine how scary it would be to be there by yourself. No. I
0: We were there, um, we happened to be there, um, for the shining ball. Mm. So it was very much not empty. I mean, it was full. So, um, some of that haunted stuff lost, um, lost some of the shine just because we were there with so many people, so many people, but we did stay in a haunted room. Um, we stayed in the Lord Dunraven room. Nothing happened. Um, but you know, still pretty awesome. Um, So that was, as we just said, it was his inspiration for the Overlook Hotel. Right. Um, He and his wife stayed there. Uh, It was, and it was, it was winter. And they were like, we just said, they were the only ones there. Um, And that setting really struck King as kind of the perfect setting for a ghost story. Um, In the the dining room, there was only one entree that was available. Mm. Uh, The orchestra was playing just for them. Wow. Um, the chairs were stacked on top of each other so it, it was like very much being closed down yeah um but but still the orchestra played on uh he wandered the the, the halls at night alone oh, gosh. um at the ho- ba- hotel bartender was named grady i mean that's i mean yeah you know, that's obvious. Like, that's a- and I mean. he said that the clawfoot bathroom in in their room was deep enough that somebody could maybe drown in it. Um oh, there you go. And then that night he had a dream about his son Joe screaming as a fire hose chased him. And I and outside of that room two, two, oh my God, is it two eighteen? Two seventeen. Whatever. There is a huge rolled up fire hose. Oh wow. Yeah. So um it was really it was really a cool place to be, just in that, you know, you're in Estes Park, you're um, the, the Rockies are there, gorgeous. you know, it, the, mm-hmm. it was elk season, so the elks, or elk season, mating season, I think, so they were doing their bugling stuff, oh. which was kind of creepy to hear that coming from out the window, sure. um, but it was a gorgeous, gorgeous place. I mean, here's a little dumb side note, it was also used, the Stanley Hotel was used in uh, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> when they're riding the Lamborghinis and going up the stairs into the hotel, it's the Stanley Hotel. Oh, wow. Um, so, and just to tie in with a podcast we just did, two of the influences for this um, book were The Fall of the House of Usher and The Mask of the Red Death.
1: I know. Yeah. Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe was an influence to King. I yeah. mean, who wasn't Edgar Allan Poe at this point? Well, an influence I mean, to, right? absolutely.
0: Um, but he, um, he said... I think this is his favorite novel Mm. because it is the most autobiographical. Yeah. Um, He, he is, what is,
1: was Jack Torrance. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I find it fascinating um, how much he writes about writers, which I, I talk Mm -hmm. a a little bit about later, but yeah, he, he, you can definitely see some inspiration from his own life in this, in this story. So, yeah. So the shining, uh, obviously that went on to be extremely popular um, eventually though so he's in Boulder Colorado yeah he ends up back in Maine um, and he's teaching creative writing at the University of Maine excellent. so yeah so excellent um, a
0: couple you imagine being in a class a ta- class taught by oh Stephen King oh my god come on
1: can you imagine or now like maybe at the time you knew he was popular but now you're like actually i was taught by the master of horror (laughs) right did you know that yeah that's that's that's, a resume builder right? yeah so kind of a couple um just interesting to bits of information i guess you would call them king it's pretty well known he suffered from addiction to alcohol and drugs in the 1980s yes one and i think this isn't on writing and you've read that so you probably would be able to speak to it but he says that he hardly remembers even writing cujo yeah And he was able to kind of overcome that, and he's been sober since the late 80s. So that's fantastic news. In the 90s, so later 90s, um, he was involved in a pretty horrific car accident. So he was actually a pedestrian in this instance, and he was hit by the driver of a van. And this driver said that they were distracted by this unrestrained dog in the vehicle, and so they were kind of going all over the road. And he hit king who ended up in you know a ditch and he was uh, thankfully lucid enough to get help and communicate who he was when the paramedics came and all of that stuff but he was so badly injured he had to undergo some extensive surgery and they thought they were going to have to take his leg yeah it was really bad and he ended up having to be in the hospital for a long time and i i mean this is just a testament to his fortitude because he decides he's just going to write from the hospital you know, you go through this terrific traumatic accident and the net thing Stephen King is, you know, upset about is the fact that he can't get back to writing. So that's just a testament to kind of his love of the craft, yeah, really. And I believe it was on writing. He was writing from the hospital room, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember. But I think I think that might have been what he was I working on at the time. So um, a couple other fun things. He pu- has published under multiple pseudonyms. Mm hmm. Uh, one of them being Jonathan John Swithin, uh, Beryl Evans, and then one of his more famous ones, Richard Bachman. So there is a couple stories as to why he might write under these pseudonyms. But one of the things that kind of resonated with me in my research, and I think this might be perhaps one the, the biggest reason, he was writing so many books so fast he was worried that the public wouldn't want to buy three, four, five Stephen <laughs> King novels in one year. And so he was using multiple pseudonyms to kind of publish right. as many stories as he was publishing and not lose the luster, lose the momentum of all of these folks buying his stories. So it was just that he was so productive <laughs> he had to use another name, which I find fascinating. Some other things he's been involved in, uh, aside from the books, obviously, that he's written. He has co-authored novels. um, Particularly, he co-authored one with his son, which is awesome. He has done some comic writing. He has written musicals.
0: Carry the Musical. That's a thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, He is even a guitarist in a band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Tess Gerriton, who uh, I met. Actually, Dave Barry also. Uh-huh. There are several
1: in there. In that... that band. It's a band of authors. Yeah. It's called the Rock Bottom Remainders. Yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah, awesome. An, a whole band of authors. Who would have known? Uh, he he collaborated with Michael Jackson to write the music uh, music video to Ghosts in 1996. It's like a 40-minute musical video. Nice. Ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. And he also collaborated with John Mellencamp to write the musical Ghost Brothers of Darkland County in 2012. (laughs) All right. So he is a fascinating person who is just all over the place. Yeah. Doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I love it. Like
0: more talent than one person can use in a lifetime. Yeah. How is
1: this possible? I don't know. I don't understand. He's also a philanthropist. Mm Mm-hmm awesome philanthropist he donates about approximately four million dollars a year to multiple different causes he chairs his very own foundation alongside his wife Mm -hmm. and that foundation gives out about 2.8 million dollars in grants to maine oh that's awesome isn't that great uh, so, like I said earlier, he really puts his money where his mouth is. Yeah. He, he is using his fame and his fortune to at least try to do good in the world, which is all you can ask. That's, yeah. you know, that's all we want. So, I, I am so, so thrilled about that. Uh, another very strange fact, he and Tabitha own a radio station.
0: Don't they own like three radio stations? Yeah, it's
1: like a group. It's like a conglomerate or whatever <laughs> you would call it. Zone Radio Corps. Well, you know, diversify. Diversify. I am just like in awe of everything he's involved in. Um, I, uh, just some more biographical information. Um, he has three children. Naomi Rachel, who is, a, she's a reverend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joseph Hillstrom, who is an author and actually writes under the name Joe Hill. And then Owen Phillip, who is another author. So very talented children. And uh, he currently has a couple homes in Maine and then also in Florida where he winters. And he's still writing and <laughs> kicking and doing his thing. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad to have researched and now know more about his yeah. story. Because I feel like he he is he's a prolific author, but he is more than that. And yeah. that's awesome. That's pretty, cool. that's pretty great. Mm-hmm.
0: Talk just i just wrote down some um i jotted down some notes about some of the this the stories yeah and where they came from absolutely um he said that he um most of his books start with a situation Mm -hmm. uh, and an opening scene Mm -hmm. and if he can see where that is gonna take where that's gonna go even if it doesn't end there then he'll start that book yeah but if he can't see that then he
1: he just doesn't right
0: and then I was thinking about, uh, you said, it mentioned Cujo, um, that was sparked by a real life event.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. Tell he, me more. He
0: took his motorcycle, um, to a mechanic on a farm that somebody had recommended to him in the middle of nowhere. Um, and this, this mechanic was this big imposing type, you uh-huh. know, you know, middle of nowhere type. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Um, and he said he also, there was the biggest dog he had ever seen. And the, the guy or the, the mechanic said uh, the dog won't bite you or anything. So, um, he went to pet the dog and the dog went after him. (laughs) So, which made him start to think, um, uh, I'm way, I can't fight off this dog. So if it comes for me, it's probably going to kill me. Yeah. Um, so he's thinking that. And then he also started to think about while he was waiting, what is the smallest possible space uh, that a novel could be set in? Oh, neat. And then he says a Ford Pinto. There's something about a Pinto earlier. He buys one or something with some of his royalties. I I can't remember what that was, but anyway, he says a Ford Pinto. Um. So, I mean, it, clearly you see the the shape oh. of the movie coming. Oh yeah. And there is one pretty controversial thing in this, and I mean, this is going to be a spoiler alert, but. If you haven't read it or seen the movie by now, you don't care. So, um, he actually lets Tad die, the little boy, um, in the book, Tad dies. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, but when they went to make the movie, he did not object with, uh, the people who, the director of the movie, the people who made the movie, uh, with al- allowing Tad to live. Um, So he said, uh, this is a, a quote from an interview he did. He says, I can remember thinking that I wanted the book to feel like a brick was heaved through your window at you. I've always thought that that sort of book that I do should be a kind of personal assault. It ought to be somebody lunging right across the table and grabbing you and messing you up. It should get in your face. It should upset and disturb you. Um, it should also be mentioned that at this time, this is when he was really deep into that cocaine and yeah. um, drinking addiction, uh, and he do- he did say that he barely remembers writing it. Yeah, um,
1: that's so fascinating because, yeah, I mean, that has to be. Who can think of anything that people are love more or like are more protective of than animals, right? Yeah, and especially dogs. Yeah, and. Turning that thing into the villain and then making that your most violent novel. Yeah. That's something. That's a statement. And killing the kid. And killing the kid. Killing the kid and making the most beloved thing the evil thing. Yeah. that's a ho- that, that right there is the <laughs> hardest thing. Like, yeah. the, how can you get over that?
0: Yeah. I mean, because I, I remember seeing, I mean, just the movie. I'm, I'm basically going off the movie, but I felt so bad for that dog
1: poor dog didn't deserve that deserve that oh i'm gonna have to read kujo now because it sounds way grittier than the yeah the the movie is yeah and the movie is pretty hard i mean the movie is hard to watch because it is kind of viscerally scary yeah um
0: he said though weirdly he said though uh, out of all of that that we just talked about that the hardest scene for him to write in the book was um the confrontation between the husband and wife about infidelity oh really yeah he Hmm. said that was the the toughest part
1: Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. I would be interested to know, I can't think off the top of my head, if many more of his work involves infidelity.
0: Oh, Lord, who knows? Maybe
1: that's like a personal thing for him. I don't know. Yeah. I knows. don't know. I don't know. Um, I just wanted to give a quick shout
0: out to uh 1983's Christine. Ooh, yes. Um The location of Christine is an homage to his good friend, George A. Romero. There you go. Uh, there you Pittsburgh. Go um the book's also dedicated to him mm. um he considered christine his first true horror novel after the shining um because it offers no rational explanation for the supernatural events it just happens um and you know he you know he he was like this uh runaway train so this production christine started 4 days before the book uh was was released wow yeah Wow. So man his train once it started um and you learn in on writing that he built his own empire. He oh. the mountain of rejection letters and all oh. that but once once
1: he hit man his hard work paid off. His hard work paid off and boy did he work. Mm-hmm. I mean he I have written down here um he has sold over three hundred and fifty million copies of his work. <laughs> wow. Uh he's published over sixty novels mm-hmm. uh five nonfiction books uh to- and over two hundred short stories. Good God. I mean he just churns out and this isn't just like stories. These right. are Stephen King yeah, stories. Oh, right. Like this is amazing that anyone could work that much. Uh, more than 30 of his books have been on the number one bestsellers list. Yeah. Wow. He's heavily awarded. Heavily awarded. And of those, I, I, there are too many for me to have even written them down, but two of them I did write down because he is a National Medal of the Arts award winner. Really? And also the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. Two extremely uh, prestigious high honors. and high honors, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is well decorated. No, well,
0: he definitely earned it.
1: Yeah. I mean- oh, definitely, definitely earned it. Um, I wrote down a couple things to kind of bounce off of what you just said. So, in addition to kind of having a trajectory as he starts writing, I also found this really cool article about him. The him emphasizing the first lines in his stories. Oh, okay. And he uh, he says that the first line should be kind of an invitation to the reader. And I loved how he put it. It was like a, hey, come in here. You're going to want to know what happened. <laughs> I love that. That is a
0: really cool way to think about it.
1: Yeah. And so, and, and he, he kind of referenced a couple of the first lines that he, uh, he himself is a fan of. And they're all very simple and short, mm-hmm. but they do have this kind of, voice or tone to them that is it, it, it sets you up for what to expect from mm-hmm. that book and and it kind of hit me all at once like oh yeah awesome. and and you have to think about it from the reader's perspective too right you do judge a novel by that first few sentences even I'd say if you're gonna like it or not you're yeah. gonna like you're gonna know you're gonna know pretty soon on if you're gonna like yeah. it or not so it is very important
0: and what's funny about that is I love that um I love that he does that. I, I hey, come on in here, something, Somebody... mm-hmm. but I don't very often get past the first few right? of his
1: pages. So see, it doesn't work for me. It does, his style doesn't <laughs> work for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I I think that's really fascinating about him. Um, he also has shared that he thinks that any new writer or anyone aspiring to be a writer should dedicate. Four to six hours of their day to writing, mm-hmm. and if they cannot do that, then writing just isn't the thing for you.
0: Yeah, what's I, I got something that he said about that?
1: Uh, a thousand words a day. Uh, I
0: I misspelled a word, and it just threw me <laughs> off. Like, I'm like what oh did my I God. do? Uh, five days a week for fifty weeks, wow. and if you do that, you will finish two hundred and fifty thousand words which is the size of two to three novels in a year.
1: Uh, of two to three Stephen King-sized novels. Yeah, let's exactly. Be, let, let, exactly. Let's, let's back that up, Stephen King. Yeah. I have a bone to pick with you about <laughs> the behemoth that was it, which I I have a lot to say about because I got through it, and damn it, someone's going to hear me talk about it because I got through yeah. it. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, I just... I have not read on writing, and I want mm-hmm. to read on writing because he... It, just the little tidbits that I have pulled from some of this research that I've done. Yeah. He is just his ideas about writing resonate. Yeah. They really resonate.
0: No. And that's exactly right. I'm not a writer, but the book spoke to me and mm-hmm. uh, I even wrote that in my notes too. Um, especially about the creative process and the need to create yeah. and the tenacity it takes to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the book is, it's, it's part memoir, it's part masterclass. So, I mean, if you're a writer,
1: this read this book. book. Um, and, and it sounds like if you're just a creative, read this book. Yeah, because it'll be yeah. informative in some way.
0: Well, and what I love about it too is uh, interwoven throughout it to to back up his advice. Um, he talks about really vivid childhood memories. Wow. Um, so he's con- he connects me to the humanity of a child a childhood, and then.
1: Weaves that to the craft. Absolutely. So
0: uh, so good. Yeah. So
1: good. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to pick that up. Someone else pick it up and then we'll read it together and then we'll talk about it. Do that. Do it. Do it. Do it. Hashtag do it. So uh, I wanted to just throw out there a couple of hit people that inspired him or at least yeah, yeah, he's yeah, claimed sure. have inspired him. Richard Matheson, who is the author of I Am Legend. I Am Legend. Which is a Great book
0: if yes. you haven't read it. Oh, it's it's always on my nightstand.
1: It is so good and so scary. Actually, right now it's in the drawer of the nightstand, but it's there. It's there. I it's just not visible. Yeah, it's great. H.P. Love H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. as you imagine, uh, and Ray Bradbury.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes
1: sense. That makes complete sense. And then some of his favorite books, and again, he's listed more than this. I'm just giving you a couple. The Satanic Verses. Ah lord of the flies Mm and 1984 okay yeah yeah so kind of these very drear (laughs) (laughs) these very drear books um so I, i i think that says a lot about him as well um a couple other little fun tidbits uh he often, so obviously so many of his stories have been, made it to kind of the big and small screen, right? So, so much of his work is notorious. Um, you don't have to read Stephen King to know Stephen King.
0: Exactly. You're I am the prime an, example of that. You're the
1: prime that. example, right. And, but if you, if you do read his stories, you'll kind of very quickly figure out much, of, most of them, I would say most all of that I've read of him, actually. His stories focus on the nerds. The misfits, mm-hmm. the loners, yep. the people outside of the of the popular crowd or, or the crowd you would typically think would be yeah. the center of a story. He always focuses on who you wouldn't expect. Uh, he A lot of his stories are focused on things that he has experienced in his own life. So you'll see a lot of writers in right? his stories that he's writing about. You'll see addiction pop mm-hmm. up from time to time. So, you know, he's very versed in a lot of the experiences that he's talking about you know he gives them a supernatural twist obviously but a lot of it is grounded in his reality you can see he he writes what he knows in that his stories are set in Maine and Colorado <laughs> right. the right two places he's lived uh, so you can kind of see he he's really good about grounding stories and the things that are familiar to him and one of my favorite things about Stephen King is that all of his stories take place in the same universe which means nope. That someone out there better make a damn Marvel Universe only the King Universe. Yeah. Someone better do it.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Pennywise shows up and Stand By Me.
1: Yes. 100%.
0: <laughs> All right. Before we keep going, because I got I got some tidbits to say about some of
1: his stuff here. Uh, I want to hear it, and I um, have to give you my it review because yes. it, it is it is screaming out of my body.
0: So the third shot, it's starting to froth. Oh <laughs> no! Is there something in the shot? There is. This it looks w- like a Reese's. No, this one. <laughs> this one is in tribute to misery.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, oh no, why would you make a shot and tribute to and me? And
0: Annie Wilkes. And this one is called the Cockadoody. And oh. you got to say it just like that. Go ahead and describe what it looks like. Cockadoody.
1: Well, I immediately thought there's like a candy broken up in it. So it looks to be like a Reese's candy, but Endemic has confirmed it is not a Reese's candy, but that's what it looks like. It's like a cup, a, a buttercup of some. Of some sort. Mine is pulsating. Yours is pulsating and mine is, but I'm also w- wiggling it around. It is frothing. <laughs> that is an that is a fact. It is like an amber amber color. Um it looks like poop water with turds in it. Okay. Yes, that is what it looks like. You were
0: trying not to say it, but just say it. It's the cockadootie. It's 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 shitty toilet water. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have at it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, that tastes good. Yes, it does. Oh mm, my god. Ooh. that was delicious that yeah, was really good and what it was it is um amaretto mm-hmm. and some kamchatka because mm-hmm. we gotta get rid of this bottle yeah it's I mean, still I'm... almost full it is still almost full it's a lightweight traveler though um <laughs> so i i went with those two to give that little bit of a uh, An amaretto flavor, like sort of a cherry ish flavor. I really love that. I love that too. And it also looked like brown, shitty toilet water. It did. And then I broke up some pieces of something called a cup of gold. It was very good. Thick, rich milk chocolate with a creamy, smooth center of almonds and coconut and marshmallow. It was very good. That was so good.
1: Can I just say you constantly say on this podcast and in real life, That you are not a mixologist, that you have a horrible (laughs) palate, that Mm -hmm. everything you've made me tonight has been delicious.
0: And I'm trying to gross you out. And it is
1: not working. It's not working. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) take that. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh my gosh. Um, So what do you want to do next? You want me to do my book review? You want to go and talk about your tidbit?
0: Well, you want Which, to, <laughs> why did I say it
1: like <laughs> you that? You want to do your tidbits.
0: Um, have another shot,
1: Which I <laughs> am. I'm going to.
0: Okay, so basically what I have to talk about, I mean, we can decide here. I have a couple of honorable mentions. Um, and then I basically talk a little bit about what um, Stephen King thinks of some of his book adaptations.
1: Ooh, are one of his book adaptations it?
0: You know what? I don't think I covered it. Then you go
1: first because you we'll end, uh, have to make the final shot so I can be right. talking while you're making the final shot. Right. That's going to be the game changer. By um, the way, uh, Does by game changer, you mean I'm going to dislike it? Vomitron, hopefully. jeez.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Actually, it'll probably be freaking good because it's ridiculous. It's probably, be good. Okay. So I just wanted to give some honorable mentions and just a couple little tidbits here and my own little opinions. And, and it's really pretty short, actually. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to the running man, which he wrote under Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that story. I love that movie. Um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger running through a, uh, a gauntlet of killer hockey players and shit. I mean, that's pretty great. Um, he said he wrote it in, the, in a week in a house full of kids. So I can imagine how it probably felt to have a house full of kids, Probably like somebody trying to kill you with a hockey stick.
1: Yeah, I mean that feels like it's grounded in reality. I feel like yeah, running through a prison gauntlet. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. sounds great.
0: So, next, a movie I love, and I will not apologize for it: Maximum Overdrive. Is that the one we watched recently, with the uh, the trucks surrounding mm-hmm. the truck stop? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Huge fan. I love that freaking movie. It rocks and rolls. Um, it's loosely based on one of his short stories called Trucks, um, and it was actually, he wrote and directed it, So, it, but this was his only foray into directing, and maybe because of the movie, that maybe that's why. Um, the soundtrack is ACDC.
1: Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> love. you gotta love that. But it got
0: panned pretty good. Um, King actually ended up disowning the film and described it as a moron movie. Okay. He also said he was coked out of his mind and didn't really know what he was doing. Um, you know, I
1: think it's great fun. It's great but, fun.
0: Yeah, but he said it was a learning experience. Um, and that he never and in- he would never direct again. <laughs> oh so, wow! No, whatever. I love that movie. I think it's so much fun. Um, Dreamcatcher from two thousand one. Oh, yeah, has one of the best farts in all of cinema. When the dude has the thing inside of him and he's sitting in the chair, and he like basically. Uh, vibrates the entire house. It's amazing.
1: I don't remember that, (laughs) but I'm mad that I don't remember
0: it. I mean, obviously, uh, Misery and Dolores Claiborne. um, And for me, I didn't read either of those stories, but I mean, anything with Kathy Bates in it, she can make the worst characters
1: ever sympathetic. Worst characters ever sympathetic. Like, I, I just love her. Yeah, she's Like, phenomenal. I just have love in my heart for Kathy mm-hmm. Day. Me too. Um, Doctor Sleep, mm-hmm. um,
0: 2013. Uh, I thought that movie was fantastic. And I I go into his movies a lot with um, low expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one, I loved that one. Maybe because I liked the hat. Um, oh, well, yeah. Rebecca Ferguson, I think, is the name of the actress that plays that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so Stand By Me, obviously. Yep. Yep. Uh Okay, so what does Stephen King think of some of his movie adaptations yeah. uh, or his book adaptations? He's generally supportive, um, but like I said earlier uh, in the thing with he and Romero, he um, he very much wants the the integrity of the original vision to be intact. Okay. Um. So with that, I mean he's a pretty tough critic. Sure. Um. But but if but if they do something right, he you know, he comes clean that they did it right. Sure. Um, but he, he should be that it's his work. He's
1: allowed to, and be. if anyone's allowed. Yeah. To be that, you know, him. and
0: people are going to capitalize on his name. So right. he right. should, you know, right. Get to say something about it. Um, so I don't know if, did we mention it when we talked about the shining? Um, that how he feels about how it? I he, don't think f- so. I don't, think, I don't, we don't did. think we did. Um, he has feelings about the shining. Um, he really thought that Kubrick went against everything um, that that he accomplished in that novel. Mm-hmm. He considers that novel somewhat autobiographical, very self-reflective. Um, and he apparently even took some of these changes that Kubrick made personally. Um, he says that Jack Torrance has no story arc mm. because the initial um, purpose was for this writer to struggle with these issues and yeah. then slowly... Descend Just d- into madness, whereas you could see madness in Jack Torrance's eyes when he walked in the way. When he walked in the door, you
1: really can. Yeah. So
0: he said, you know, he, um, he said that was the tragedy of what he did to
1: that character. Yeah. Um, and it's hard too, because if King based that on his own personal life, it would be hard not to take that personally. Absolutely. Even if it wasn't intended personally. Well,
0: and, and I, I've heard too, I watched, um, a documentary about it, and I can't remember what it was called, but, um, where there were a couple little uh, little digs at Stephen King mm. in the, like in the beginning when they're going up the mountain, it mm. is a red uh, a red beetle, yeah, that is crushed by um, that, that's in the accident. They pass by an accident and it is a crushed red beetle, which the I think I think the the car in the book was a red beetle, but he did not use he used some yellow thing. Oh. So just like little digs here and there, I guess. Um, and also, you know, the end um, in the movie, the hotel freezes. But in the book, the hotel blows up, oh. you know, so. But he, you know, really had some, especially with that character, because he felt such or feels such a personal connection to that character. And then he just changes the whole dynamic.
1: I want to rewind to. I want to I want to psychoanalyze. I want to <laughs> rewind to that red crushed beetle cuz that does feel personal mm-hmm. and hostile, violent. Like screw you, I'm going to do what I want. And it with your movie, or with your book. And I, I I am completely saying this off the cuff. So it c- this could be totally wrong and totally off base. But it seems that that feels very violent, feels very hostile and Stephen King wrote this story that you are making money off of. Mm-hmm. And to do that is yeah. like slapping it in the face. Why?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't know. Dick slinging nonsense. Yeah, but it, it I don't feels know.
1: like, I mean, don't compare dicks with the writer of your story because <laughs> he's going to win. You yeah. know, like he's the reason you're even able to make this story. You didn't come up with it. Right. That feels weird. Yeah, it is. Like that. It is. Just
0: unnecessary. Yeah. Um, so, but there were others that he actually, um, he did like. He loved the adaptation of Stand By Me, which was mm-hmm. based on a novella called The Body. Mm-hmm. Um, the rumor is that after the screening, he had to hurry up and excuse himself so he could pull himself together. Oh, um, because it affected him. Um, he told Rob Reiner, who directed the movie, that it was the best adaptation he'd ever seen. Oh, wow. Um, but he also, which wasn't saying much at that time, I guess. Uh, yeah. But um, he loved it so much that he actually gave Rob Reiner permission to call his production company Castle Rock Entertainment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Castle Rock is the town that is so yeah. often the center of his books. So yeah. um, That has to be an honor. Right. Right. You would imagine. I mean, yeah. That, I mean, he if, if he's such a harsh critic, yeah. yeah. Um, so Carrie, he hasn't really said a whole bunch about Carrie, but he said it's good but dated.
1: Oh, okay. I mean,
0: that makes sense. Yeah, that's fine. Um, John Carpenter's Christine. Mm-hmm. Um, Carpenter said he got support from King, but didn't say much other than that. But then when they asked Carpenter later if he would do another Stephen King movie, he said, hell no, that's work.
1: Uh, that's very carpenter that (laughs) is like that is quintessential carpenter i love it
0: Mm -hmm. he said cujo was the best of the smaller pictures that were made into uh, movies um and he said misery is great and one of the 10 best adaptations so it made the list good um and he said shawshank redemption Mm. ties with stand by me for the best oh wow Um, Frank Darabont nailed it. And Frank Darabont was in the early, um, uh, he was one of the early directors of Walking Dead.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. So,
0: so that's, that's what he thinks about some of his adaptations. Well, that's great. So, all right, girl, get after it. Tell me about it. it. Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) If any of you follow our Instagram you know that I had an entire summer last year obviously confined to my home and to my own devices (laughs) thus I took on the behemoth novel that is it and by behemoth I mean if you have not seen this novel in person it is over a thousand pages long and I have had it so long that I've Clearly, if you see it, I I have dipped it in water at some point. What the hell? Uh, How did it do that? It crinkled? I don't know. I don't know. But I got through it. I did it. Mm -hmm. I read this. Well done. I read this thing. If you are listening to this, go to our website because I wrote, I actually wrote a piece of criticism on this book. It's on our website. Read it. Uh, And I'll I'll give you uh, some highlights here tonight. So, It, short synopsis of the book, Uh, it takes place kind of in two time periods. There is a period of time where the main characters in the book are children, and then there's a period of time in the book where the main characters are adults. Um, So, you're kind of balancing between two worlds there. Um, But uh, an overall synopsis is there is a killer in the town of Derry, Maine, terrorizing children, Children are going missing left and right and the Losers Club, the group of young children uh, that are at the center of this book, um, take it upon themselves to go after the killer. Um, and then uh, they do that and the, the killer kind of reappears later in their life and they have to kind of rinse repeat once again. Yeah. So, um, and it, this is not a spoiler at all uh the killer is pennywise the dancing clown <laughs> which i love so i kind of just highlighted some likes and dislikes like i said i did a formal review critique of this book on our website so i highly encourage you to check that out if you haven't already um where you'll get a little bit more of a glimpse into you know a more formal and rehearsed thing <laughs> um but uh, I liked a lot about this book. I mean, it's big enough. There's got there are bound to be things that you're going to like. So I want I want to kind of start with those. And the, the thing that I've always loved about every King novel I've read is that his ability to paint a scene for his reader is uncanny because I felt feel so immersed in the worlds that he creates, in the towns that he writes. So
0: that doesn't bog you down? That doesn't
1: bog me down. In imagery? Yes, no. I've never been... um, I I know that 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 can kind of pull some people out when you just feel like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, I'm in... I, I'm in the forest with you. I'm right, in the right. basement with you. What? Let's move on. I kind of lo- love those little details. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. I just ha- always have been sure. kind of into that. So, uh, And he does. He paints a scene um, really minutely. Um, it, the particular um, kind of writing that he does in It, sp- specific to It, is... He really kind of describes this town as this kind of rainy waterlogged town with a river and Mm -hmm. sewer system like water is so just threaded through this novel and he does it so well. Uh, there's also a, a place where the Losers Club kind of gathers often throughout their childhood called the Barrens. He really sits you, he gets you into the Barrens. You know, you can kind of immerse yourself in, in this kind of woodsy atmosphere. And then the other thing that he just paints so well is the sewer system of this town, which feels kind of technical and not like, why would I care about a sewer system in this town? But it's so integral Mm -hmm. to the book. And it's a maze and it's just, it's so, it's painted so well. So the imagery itself is fantastic. The other thing I love about this book is the story, how he kind of lays it out for you. Because every chapter in the book, you get the story from a different person's perspective. And you get to see each one of these kids. There are multiple main characters in this book. Um, And you get to see how the story unfolds for each of them. The experiences that they go through. The terrors that they go through with Pennywise the clown. Because he's terrorizing these kids. He's scaring them. Um, And you get to see what that terror looks like. Because what's really cool about Pennywise is that he plays on your worst fear. So he might appear as a dancing clown to one c- child and appear as a huge bird to another town, uh, to another child. And so it's just kind of playing on what you're most afraid of. Yeah, that's
0: like that, uh, I don't know, ancient, uh, the Boggart, the bogart. The oh, yeah, um, yeah. Where it takes the form of whatever you're whatever s- most you're scared of. of. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Exactly like that. And so you by writing the story through all the children's perspective, you get immersed in their fear. Mm-hmm. You you feel it. It scares you even. Mm-hmm. And some of their fear, I mean, he's writing from a child's perspective so it's kind of silly and mundane mm-hmm. and not something that you might be scared of now. But as you're reading it through their eyes, you are terrified of that thing. Um, and he does the same kind of uh, style where he's focusing on one character at a time when they're adults too. So you can kind of see this horror drawn in their in their actual lives and, and what they're experiencing in their adult lives. And I just really appreciate that because you get multiple perspectives in this book. So that, I think, is a definite positive here. Okay. Uh, the characters. Another thing that I like, he f- he does justice to every single one of his characters. He really gives you a fully envisioned Um, character from their quirks their appearances you know all sorts of um, really good details there the villain Pennywise um, like I said he is a child's worst nightmare and he becomes your worst nightmare as you kind of go through this book there's also this really cool background story to Pennywise uh, where he is an ancient evil um, and he kind of transcends time in that way i won't give too much of a spoiler in that but it it is really cool and i i highly encourage you uh to look more into pennywise and his backstory because he's he's a creepy creepy dude Mm -hmm. and then finally the themes um the book at first glance is just a scary story about things that scare kids and fighting off this primordial evil dancing clown (laughs) um it's so much more than that though when you dive into the actual book I would argue that Pennywise is just a tool for Stephen King to talk about how actually horrifying people are Hmm. and how actually horrifying childhood is and growing up uh, and the experiences that you have growing up. So many of these children are experiencing bullying Mm -hmm. and are experiencing racism, experiencing puberty and uh inappropriate adults, uh neglectful adults. Yeah. Uh there is a real kind of horror in juxtaposing that horror that you know you now understand as a as an adult that's bad and then the innocence of of the children there's a real horror in that and he plays on that really really well in this book he juxtaposes Hmm. those things so i would say that is a good thing now i will say i had some strong dislikes in this book and they're pretty egregious in my opinion Mm -hmm. which is why it's hard i love this book and i also hate this book um the dislikes, first of all, as you mentioned earlier, endemic mm-hmm. Beth is the one female character, main character, female main character, I should say, in the book, and she is particularly brutalized. Out of all of the mm-hmm. of the characters, both as a child and then as an adult, she experiences abuse in both of those mm-hmm. eras of her life by two different people, um, and. It is just hard to read. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it came from, and I want to say now, this this is kind of like a content warning because I am going to be talking about sexual violence and, and, yeah. and abuse. Um, But I don't know if it's because I'm a woman reading this story, but just the idea of having to hone in on her going through puberty and having a father who is clearly abu- physically abusive mm-hmm. but also clearly teetering on sexually abusive the entire story yeah. it, it's something that i was i was dreading because i was so scared her father's going to do something I just, mm-hmm. I just know it i just know it i just know it that was hard mm-hmm. and it felt like it wasn't necessary and, and it felt just, it didn't lend to the mm-hmm. story in any way. So I wasn't quite sure why it was there. Mm-hmm. And then there were a lot of conversations around her menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, oh, her... that's
0: just something little boys are obsessed with. No, no that doesn't have to be necessary. Strange. And then yeah. in
1: her adult life, she's brutalized by her partner. Right. Um, so I wasn't a fan of Beth's story. Yeah. I'm a fan of Beth because she kicks some major ass. Yeah. But I wasn't a fan of Beth's story. But
0: why doesn't that part of his writing evolve ever?
1: I don't know. He spends
0: 50 pages talking about the Barons, mm-hmm. developing the Barons as kind of a character on in their itself, own. Yes. Yeah, in it's on it, in itself. Why can't the other part evolve?
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. Hmm. The other thing kind of ties closely the sexual themes in this right in this work, and I I I don't know if this is a trope amongst King novels, but it, it felt particularly inappropriate in a, in, a, in a story about children about kids. Yeah, I I just have a hard time understanding why that needed to be in here. Yeah, it felt weird and unnecessary. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to say about that because it just makes me even uncomfortable thinking about Mm -hmm. it. Right. So, um, but overall, like I said, there were some things that I profoundly loved in this novel and there are some things I really, really, it, it was hatred Mm -hmm. in this novel. Um, I will say the things I hated came along kind of closer to the end. Okay. So, uh, There was one point, I think I was close to page 800 or 900, where it was getting real bad, and I was like, I actually have to finish it at this point, because if I stop, why did I just read 800 pages? Yeah,
0: I've heard the ending of this is not awesome, but I have also heard that about a lot of his books, that Mm -hmm. he is
1: not great at endings. I would, uh, if this book is a testament to that, then I would say yes. Yeah that feels right um but i mean check it out for yourself if you're interested in stephen king if you're interested in this story i'd say go for it but i'd say go for it cautiously because you are going to experience some things that are uncomfortable for sure for sure for sure
0: that was very good
1: yeah three shots in and you're still pretty smart (sighs) i love it well we're gonna see how this smart ass nerds oh yeah Yeah, that's right that's right
0: that was really good um I like when you can like something, but also um, find the constructive criticism. All right.
1: So are we ready for this fourth shot?
0: Um, yeah. Well, since are we moving into what the hell? Are we there? Yes. Okay. So this fourth shot is my what the hell. <laughs> the fourth shot is your what It's the hell? my what the hell. I'm hoping it doesn't backfire and you don't think it's delicious and need to have it five times a day. Oh, no. So the, oh, all no. I'm going to say... Is the last shot is called <laughs> the Isaac and Malachi?
1: This is a, okay. So this is a Children of the Corn. It is. It is yellow in color. Looks like whiz. It looks. Just like shoot piss. it. Don't don't interact don't with it. it. Don't just, smell with. Don't just just shoot
0: it. Okay, and go. That tasted like corn on the cob. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Was it vodka and a corn on the cob soda? Vodka and sweet corn soda. I mean, Let me guess. You liked it. I didn't hate it. God damn it. I that
1: It was like buttery and sweet like corn yeah. on the cob. Okay. Well, then. That's a bizarre soda.
0: It is. But I, I'm going to agree that that was, that that was, was a smooth, that was smooth shot. A
1: smooth, that was like a very smooth shot.
0: You're going to do another one.
1: Okay. That's fine. Mm, me too. That's fine.
0: But. Okay, so what is your what That the hell? is kind
1: of a what the hell that sweet corn soda even exists. Yeah. Um,
0: Bizarre. Rocket Fizz down on High Street. Oh, yeah, Rocket Fizz. Has a, a case full of
1: insane sodas. Yeah, for sure. You have to check it out if you're in Columbus. I, I highly recommend uh, Okay, so my what the hell is clown based. Uh, so I got really interested in the fear of clowns. Because if you think about it, clowns are supposed to make you laugh, and they're they're a children's thing, so it's supposed to you know be part of children's birthdays and like <laughs> circuses. And except, I have a whole thing on circuses; they, they they're terrible. Anyway, agreed. Uh, but they're they're supposed to be jovial. That's what I'm trying to say. They're supposed to be jovial, and they're really creepy. And I'm like, why? How did we get this notion that clowns were creepy when they were intended to be the exact opposite? Like, what happened Is there
0: research into this? Because I know why
1: I think they are. There is research into this. And it actually comes back to Charles Dickens. Really? Yes. So, apparently... They're, uh, so originally clowns way, way back when they originated, they were actually originally stage performers. So we often associate them with like child's birthday parties, like sure, I said, sure. circuses, things like that, but they actually used to hold stage shows and they would feature clowns and like pant, uh, what's it called? Miming pantomiming. P- yeah. Or- yeah. So that's exactly what they would do. Uh, and, and it wasn't until later that they kind of adapted that same thing to the circus and that, that whole
0: route. Did they start out tr- as tragic?
1: No. There was the whole
0: notion of the tragic no, clown. No.
1: That's where John Joseph Grimaldi comes in. Okay. So Joseph Grimaldi was a really famous clown in like the London circuit. Hmm. And originally clowns, like they had... Um, they had a little bit of makeup on to emphasize their features and they did a lot of like fun little bits on stage and things like that. Uh, well, Joseph Grimaldi comes in and he completely exaggerates the whole thing. Oh. He paints his face up with a ton of makeup. Yeah. And he wears the really flashy costumes and he does the real slapstick fall humor. Okay, um, He is the one who popularized that for clowns. So they're no longer kind of like this performer, funny performer now they're like clowns They're, Mm -hmm. they're 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 that's what they do um and so it's found out that grimaldi while he's super entertaining on stage has a really sad backstory in real life and he himself so he himself suffered from depression uh he had an abusive stage father his wife and son both died and then He had so many physical ailments because of the slapstick humor. So he was just really beat up at the end of his career. Right. And so when he eventually dies, Charles Dickens is sort of tasked with editing his memoirs and making this lovely story about him. So Dickens publishes this story and kind of unveils this really sad life of Joseph Grimaldi, and that's where it all turns. So clowns go from this funny stage performer to, well, what's behind the mask? Mm-hmm. What's behind the makeup? Are they really just sad and mm-hmm. sinister?
0: Could yes. they could they be
1: mean? Could they be evil? Could they be murderers? And suddenly and I feel like this happens with everything. If you have to think beyond the surface, <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> Good point. Yes, so that is how clowns came to be creepy. Thank you, Charles Dickens.
0: Okay, yeah, because I mean that's kind of that's kind of what I think. It's this grown adult, yes, painting their face to be perpetually happy, but no adult point. is perpetually happy and no. jovial and no. slapstick and no. Oh, so it's just. Yeah. I don't
1: know what's going on behind the makeup. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Exactly that. So. Yuck. We owe everything we now know, our wisdom, to Charles Dickens. To Charles Dickens.
0: Okay, let's have an Isaac and Malachi toast to Charles Dickens. To Charles Dickens. Tink! Down the hatch.
1: It really tastes like corn.
0: And it's really smooth.
1: <laughs> I don't understand that. <sighs> but I'm going with it. Yep. I'm just going with it. So thank you, horror nerds, for sticking in there with us tonight. We had a ton of fun talking about Stephen King and hope that you enjoyed it. Learned a little something. Yeah. Laughed a little. Laughed a little. We always hope you laugh a little or a lot Um, while you're listening to us. We would love to hear from you what your favorite Stephen King stories are, what you think about his writing. Um, What do you think about how he writes women? Yeah. That we would really love to know. I'm
0: curious about what what men and women think about that
1: yeah for sure so if you want to get a hold of us and share uh some of your thoughts you can find us at info at you can also follow us along on instagram we've always got fun content going up there throughout the week that's at the horror salon And then you can also follow along with us on our website. And I highly encourage you to do so. We always put extensive show notes up on there. So you can kind of dive down the rabbit hole with us on some of these topics. That is thehorrorsalon.com. And then finally, I must say, if you've been listening to this podcast and you enjoy yourself, we would love if you would recommend it to a friend or someone you think would just be really interested in going down the rabbit hole with two nerds on Mm -hmm. some horror topics. Um, And we'd also love it if you'd subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, if you can, leave us a like a review, a comment, any and all of that will help us get in front of other horror nerds and grow our little Are we community. allowed to say
0: the milestone of how many downloads?
1: Yes, pretty we exciting. absolutely can. We are nearing 1,000 downloads. That's so, awesome. With that, okay, so I'm going to blow out the
0: candle, but I'm going to say first that the Box of Mystery is a freaking shit show. I spilled everything. <laughs> <You> spilled
1: everything <laughs> in the Box of Mystery.
0: Um. So, the candle is out. The many Pazoozies <laughs>
1: have been emptied. I am your co-host, endemic And I'm your co-host, The Witch. We'll catch you next time at the Horror Salon, where we curate the strange and unusual.
0: Until dawn, do us part.
1: monsters it's the witch and andemic
0: music for this episode is rage by the 126ers check out our
1: website for show notes and links to some cool extras
0: later nerds